Pittman has currently lives and works in Houston and has been in Houston for many years where he was uh, Dean of the, of the Episcopal Cathedral in Houston. He resigned from the active uh, from the active role as clergy member in 1991 in order to make a career switch into becoming a Jungian analyst. He trained at the Jung Institute in Dallas between 1991 and 1996, from where he graduated at that point. He's an active priest in the Episcopal Church, but not rector to a congregation. He works in Houston, he lectures widely, he teaches at the Jung Institute in Houston, he is also a published poet, and his poems have appeared in a number of uh, well-known journals. I've known Pittman since the early 90s, when he was in the midst of his career change. When I was still in New York in the early 90s, I was asked by the Jung Institute in Dallas to come and teach a seminar to the candidates, and at that point, Pittman was a candidate in Dallas. So that's where our, our knowledge of each other began, and our paths have crossed in a number of different ways since then. And I'm personally very pleased that Pittman completed his career change and works as priest, Jungian analyst, teacher, and lecturer. And I'm very pleased and very proud to present to you one of my dear colleagues, and uh, I'm sure you will all enjoy and be stimulated by what he has to say. Pittman? Uh, good evening. I apologize for being a, a little bit late. Um, there are forest fires in Mexico. <laughs> it's nice to be with Marga again. I'm feeling like I'm getting a lot of... Can you hear me okay? I have two microphones. Maybe if I came over here. Um, it's nice to be with Marga again. She didn't tell you that in addition to being one of my trainers, she was also one of my examiners in my propodortica. <clears throat> and she passed me. <laughs> and then when I went into my control phase of training, uh, I sat with her for some hours of supervision. So she really is a mentor for me in many ways. And for her and Leon to be back in Texas and to be providing such creative leadership for this society in this city um, is something that we in the Jungian community are proud and pleased about. It's also nice to be on what my colleague and friend Jim Hollis calls the Jungian Sawdust Trail. <clears throat> There's something about uh, this world view that attracts a certain kind of person and personality. And since individuation as we know it is an extremely lonely process, uh, it's nice to be in community and communion with others who take the human vocation with ultimate seriousness. And perhaps finally and ultimately the only moral issue is consciousness. It seems to me that if there's anything that we are to do, it is to become conscious. <clears throat> and the refusal to become conscious may be finally the, the greatest blasphemy. 
So any effort on my part or yours that we can become more conscious, I think we are helping the cosmos in its evolution. That may sound a little grandiose, but the cosmos is fairly grand. I want to talk tonight about the power of darkness, and in order to do so, uh, we'll have to begin to try to make some definitions. Darkness in this worldview Is that me or is that you? Can you hear that, that feedback? Is that? Can you help me with that? Thank you, Leon. At the console tonight, Leon Spiker. To try to transform our consciousness into uh, a new orientation about darkness. Because we are such an egocentric people, and in a way, the word egocentric is redundant because the ego is at the center of consciousness by its very nature. That's its function and purpose. But because most of our language is either ego-created or ego-structured, we tend to think of light as positive and darkness as negative. When in fact, we were conceived in darkness, our earliest gestation and earliest consciousness was in darkness. We spend a significant amount of our time in, in this human vocation uh, between the birth we didn't request and the grave we can't escape. We spend much of this time in darkness. That's called sleep or the unconscious. So darkness is a place of creativity and gestation. And we tend to associate either negative or pejorative terms about darkness when in fact the dark is the place out of which we've all come. Whether we talk about the Hebrew creation myth, or whether we talk about the fetus in its conception and gestation, or whether we talk about the ego consciousness, all evolves and is created out of darkness. And so to reorient, to begin to think that darkness may be uh, the most creative and in some ways the, the containing place for transformation. Now, we do know something about um, consciousness, and that is that it's very difficult for human beings to do. It's almost as if it's unnatural. I mean, you watch an infant begin to struggle into consciousness, and that infant that has been pre-conscious struggles to become conscious and can only maintain or sustain consciousness for moments at a time before it disintegrates. Now, there evidently is a plant consciousness, um, an, an animal consciousness, but there's something about human consciousness that has its own distinctiveness. 
And it seems as though that our becoming conscious has not only function but true purpose. But it's not an easy thing for us to do. Now, even at best, we can only sustain consciousness for 18 hours at a time. And then we must lapse back into the womb of the maternal unconscious in order to be transformed and renewed in order to be able to make another increment of attempt at becoming human. And even within that 18-hour period, there are altered states of consciousness. I, only, I know that empirically, not only in terms of my own body, but being a teacher, preacher, and lecturer throughout my entire adult life, I notice when I'm lecturing, people go into altered states of consciousness. It's known clinically as a hypnagogic state. It's known in the pew as sleep. Now, <clears throat> these altered states of consciousness each have their own function and purpose in terms of uh, our own evolution, our own consciousness, and the fact that we're in an altered state of consciousness doesn't mean that it's a bad or a wrong place to be. As a matter of fact, that's some of the best learning uh, comes from that sixth grader who's staring out the window. That that period of when the ego is in idle, many times some of the best learning goes on in those times of wool gathering, dreaming, day dreaming. Maybe ultimately we don't know the difference between night dreams and day dreams. They each have their own mystery and enchantment. Some of the great human events and inventions have come around the daydream. I want to talk about consciousness tonight and talk about it in terms of some of the things that we traditionally in our civilization and culture have seen as dark things may actually have the real power to transform the human being. For instance, the word sin, which comes from the Greek word hamatia, which really means to be off the mark or to miss the mark. So that rather than sin being a pejorative term about the depraved human being, sin is a description of the process of becoming human. In other words, if we presume that there is a mark that we are, and in Jungian analytic terms, the mark would be the self, capital S, that which I was created to be, my self, capital S. Jung thought that the self was the imago dei, the image of God, the essence at the center and circumference of the psyche is the self. It's uh, a symbolic term for one's true essence. So it is the essence of who you are and the totality of who you are. It pre it's preexistent in the sense that, as I've said in a poem, that the song the bird is to sing is in the egg before the bird is born. So it is with the self that we are struggling to become, and that seems to me to be the human vocation, is to become that self. And so sin in this terminology would 
be not being oneself off the mark. And so the word repentance, which has been a uh, poorly translated word, the word repent came from the Greek word metanoia. Now, of all the noias, this is my favorite. Paranoia is not one of my favorite noias. Meta means to change, as in metamorphosis, which means to transform. Metanoia means to change your mind. And so sin is a part of the human psyche that informs us that we are not one with what we're called to be, the human vocation. And so the idea of being off the mark, rather than a description that should shame a human being, it is a description of the process toward individuation. So it's our nature to be sinful and to be not one with what we're called to be or not always on the mark with selfhood. So that begin to think about sin and repentance and to reframe in a way maybe even the entire sense of consciousness about what it means to be human that rather than the labor and pain that was issued in a punitive way in the book of Genesis, that labor and pain are not punishment, but they are process. So that in order to become conscious, it takes a lot of work and a lot of labor, and it's a very painful process. We see it in the infant. That's painful trying to become conscious. So the power in the darkness is that through those mistakes and failures, those missings of the mark, that that's where the power of transformation comes because those are magnificent opportunities for increased consciousness. Now, one of the things that Jung did that I think was one of his most important contributions was to begin to look at crisis or pain or suffering or even illness, maybe even accidents, that rather than those being simply causal, that is to say that there is a cause for the effect, that they perhaps are what he called teleological which means that these events are leading to something in the future. So that when one is presented with an illness or a difficulty or a crisis or a trauma or a tragedy, perhaps that's an opportunity that will lead to greater wholeness, more consciousness, to transformation. Teleos from which the word teleology comes, teleos means complete. So that many of the events in our lives that we see as dark, that create for us embarrassment or shame, that maybe those events actually are God or the self or the unconscious urging us toward transformation. Perhaps if any of us was conscious enough 
we wouldn't have to make mistakes or have failures or be ill or have accidents. But who among us? And as a matter of fact, it's through those experiences that we become conscious. And so the idea of power of darkness is the idea that many of the things in our human vocation that are so laborious and so painful for us are the ways by which we journey toward this mystery symbolized by the word wholeness. Jung said that neurosis is a suffering that has not yet found its meaning. That neurosis is a suffering that has not yet found its meaning. So suffering, for instance, is something that each of us wants to avoid, distract from, for reasons beyond my understanding. It seems as though the essential ingredient for the creation of whatever we mean by soul is experience. And that suffering evidently is one of those experiences that is a requirement for making soul. Whatever soul is, it's about depth and it's about complexity and it's about substance. And that seems that depth and substance seems to be created through suffering. And yet, that's another human vocation that we don't seem to have great facility with. Now, let me make a very important distinction. The kind of suffering that one has from metastatic bone cancer is not what we're talking about. That kind of destructive and raw physical suffering that goes on at MD Anderson Hospital in Houston, we're not talking about that kind of suffering. One learns from that kind of suffering all that one's going to learn in about 10 minutes. That ought to be palliated as soon as possible. And thank God for medical science that has created the ability to palliate pain. So I'm not talking about that kind of suffering. I'm talking about the kind of human suffering that is incumbent in the vocation of becoming human. One cannot become human without suffering. And suffering evidently has purpose. That there's power in those dark times, in those dark places. The etymology of the word suffering comes from the Latin ferrer, which means to carry. Suff is a pre-existent suffix meaning from below, the same as sub, S-U-B. Etymologically, the word suffer means to carry from below. I love uh, some of the King James translation of the Judeo-Christian scripture. And I particularly love that where Jesus was teaching and he said, suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for if such is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, to our contemporary ears, suffering little children doesn't sound like something one would do. It means pick them up and carry them come up and carry them up here. Suffer means to carry from beneath. Literally, it means to stand under. And that's where we get the word understanding. So 
So suffering leads to understanding. We suffer it. We carry it. We stand under it until we can understand it. So that suffering is the way in which we expand and transform soul. There's power in suffering. And unfortunately, much of the tradition that Marg and I work out of, depth psychology, uh, many of the founders, maybe exclusively the founders of depth psychology, really came out of the tradition, medical tr tradition of neurology. And so, so much of what the human vocation is about has been pathologized. That is to say that this is almost equated with sickness. You know, the word neurosis really means inflamed nerve. And that's the term we use as a kind of catch-all for not being one with oneself. It's interesting that neurosis and sin might be synonyms. And who among us is not neurotic? That's the nature of being human. We're off the mark more than we're on it. And our whole life is a commentary on reorienting ourselves to reconnect with the center uh, which generates life called self. So the idea of pathologizing suffering as if there's something wrong. But why do we do this to one another? If one comes in with some altered affect, bad mood, or, or if one is in the throes of a very powerful complex, why do we say, what's wrong? Why do we ask that of one another? What's wrong with you? Not anything wrong. It's the process that the psyche uses uh, to urge me toward greater consciousness. Now, who among us? has that kind of savoir-faire. What's wrong with you? Well, I'm simply individuating. <laughs> Most of us who are clinicians have a real love-hate relationship with the Diagnostic Statistic Manual, fourth edition because so many of those axes and those categories really are descriptions of normal human situation. And yet it's been pathologized, that is to say it's been made sick. Now, of course there are personality disorders. There are affective disorders. I thank God for um, a lot of psychopharmacology that has been redemptive for human beings. But so much of what the human experience is about is not necessarily sickness, it's just process. I'm convinced that process is an archetype. And that is that it's a predisposed pattern of human behavior, that we're in process and suffering and 
being in and out of complexes and struggling to become conscious and figuring out how to relate to another human being, uh, trying to find what we do between uh, this birth and grave and this in-between time, it's known as the mean time, that it's a process. And we tend to overemphasize the inalienable right that we have to pursue happiness. Happiness is uh, not the goal of life. Experience is the goal of life, and we are to experience life. And what many of us do much of the time is find ways to avoid the experience of life, what Jung called the provisional life. Because labor and pain are a part of the process. They're not punishment. It's not a punitive thing. It's just the way that the system works. Now, if there's anything that I say tonight that is of any profundity, listen carefully. This will be it. Not everything that feels good is good. Not everything that feels bad is bad. Now, Having sort of set that backdrop, let me talk for a minute about why we get in the situation we're in about denying the power of darkness and difficulty. Human development is really a commentary on the development of ego structure. Now, ego is a very interesting organ of the human psyche. It has function. The ego evolves into the center of consciousness. It has at least three functions. The first function of an ego is to orient the psyche into time and space. Now, this is a very platonic view. And that is that our souls were in eternity and were plucked out of eternity into time and space in order to have the human experience. And in almost that Buddhist sense, we, among all the souls in, in eternity, are among the luckiest because we were called into the human experience. And this is our vocation, is to live a time and space existence. So ego, as an organ, functions as the organ of time and space. It was created for it, and it will end when time and space does. This is very bad news for the ego. So the ego has as its function orienting the psyche in time and space. The second function is that it, that it is a differentiating organ. That is, it, that's the part of consciousness that's able to differentiate among things and therefore connect things. A third function of the ego, and this is the one that creates the most difficulty for us, is that the ego is the way by which one has identity. One is identified consciously through the ego. And further, that's 
a major self-conscious organ. Now, we were talking about human consciousness earlier. I mean, if there's a plant consciousness and, a, and an animal consciousness, there is a human consciousness. And one of the things that seems to separate us from fairly dramatically is this idea of self-consciousness. We see it in the creation story about how did you know you were naked? The word, uh, there's a whole theory that says the word Adam, Adam, really uh, has been translated all men or all human, but really it comes from the root of uh, the word for clay, which is red, and so it's, it was the idea that this, this organism was embarrassed. That's self-consciousness. Now, when I've raised this issue with dog lovers, they want to remind me that their dogs are self-conscious and that their dogs experience shame and so forth. And I'm, I'm willing to, shall we say, throw you a bone on that. But, but I do believe that humans are further evolved in terms of our self-consciousness and particularly our own embarrassment about being human. So if we just roughly in an elementary way say that those are three or four functions of ego and hold that to the side for a moment against this backdrop that we've tried to develop and then talk about the way that the ego develops for just a moment. Now this is called essentially developmental psychology. That the ego develops in increments. It's slow in developing. And Joseph Campbell says about ego development, we're born 14 years too early. It takes that long, at least, to develop some sense of ego structure. I've always been fascinated and pushed a little hard to get this concept in, but been fascinated with how the ego develops in increments of seven. That is, childhood is zero to seven, pre-adolescence is seven to 14, adolescence is 14 to 21, middle age used to be 35. Well, we're living so much longer, some of our categories have lessened. Uh, the average life expectancy in the year 1900 in this country was 47 years of age. I'm told now one in every three girls born today will live to be 100. So 35 is, you know, not quite middle age anymore, but it is a nice increment of seven, isn't it? Yeah. So the poets chose seven as the period for the creation. So we know psychologically that seven tends to be a period of completion, like the seven-year itch in a marriage. And seven's big in terms of elements and planets and those kinds of things. So the ego develops slowly. Now, the ego, in terms of its development, develops around three issues. Stimulation, gratification, and approval. Stimulation is simply that external demand that the ego develops. So that we, by our own nature, as parents or parental figures or people who are around a child, we can't leave them alone. It's in our nature to stimulate them. And in so doing, it 
awakens them, brings them into consciousness. And so their ego begins to develop in a very sort of thin eggshell way. So stimulation is very important. And we know that if an infant is born and not stimulated, it will not prosper. But stimulation is very important to ego development. Gratification is the sense of meeting the needs of the ego. So that a child coming into consciousness becomes conscious of a, of a kind of wrinkle of pain in its stomach. And if that pain is gratified by food, then the ego begins to develop around a sense that this environment is a safe one for me to grow in. And so out of the school of object relations, we see that this self and other development is very important and that the child sees its mother or surrogate mother as an object. And really, we're talking about the infant mother as a dyad so that very important as to the gratification that goes on for the infant in the earliest development, that the child must be gratified. Now, that's the good news. The bad news is we never seem to outgrow this need for gratification. One of the earliest learnings that we have that we have to relearn is that the anecdote for pain is pleasure. We have to relearn that. Because the first learning we got was that when I hurt, I get pleasure. And so the rest of our lives, we think that we have to pleasure our pain. That's the backdrop behind me that says, stay away from dark things. But what we learn eventually is that that pain may be needed to be entered into rather than avoided. And so, so many of our patterns of behavior are, are around distracting from pain rather than entering into it. And we, we not only had that primitive need to be gratified, we either were or we weren't, and that creates two different kinds of problems. Object relations describes three kinds of mothers that I think are important for us to think about in terms of ego development. The, the first is the present mother who is absent. The second is the absent mother who is present. And the third is the present mother who is present. Now, if the present mother is fully present, then she is present when she's absent. That is, that the child begins to see that if I was gratified and the mother was there, as I disintegrated, she deintegrated with me and gratified me and soothed me and gave me a sense of safety and security about my environment, that even when she's not there, I'm able to do that for myself because she's present. I have integrated her, as it were. Now, for many of us, the worst mother was the present mother who was absent. She was physically there, but unable because of her own narcissism, her own needs, to disintegrate or deintegrate with us. Be there for us, be present, be empathic. That's Alice Miller's well-known book, The Drama of the Gifted Child, where the mother was so narcissistic 
that she was unable to be empathic with the child. And for those of us who had that kind of mother, our worth was in taking care of her. We learned very early she wasn't going to take care of us, so we had to take care of her. And that's the story of becoming a Jungian analyst. So gratification is very important to ego development. And our life really is a sort of wonderment and analysis of what kind of gratification did we or did we not receive and how has that affected our own development. So stimulation, gratification, and approval. Approval is that sense that you belong. Now the ego, in a way, the first question the ego asks once it bears the birth canal is who's in charge here and what are the rules for making it? So we're introducing into our vocabulary another very important word about ego development and ego structure, and I'm doing this part of the lecture in order to establish why it is we're so damn afraid of the darkness. Because the ego prospers around approval, and so the opposite would be disapproval, and so anything that's disapproving, the ego will not tolerate consciously. Authority is a huge issue for the ego, and that is who's in charge here because I must get their approval and approval in order for me to be here and to prosper. Now the infamous negative mother complex in analytical psychology has a script that runs thusly. that my worth or my approval comes from pleasing mother. Now, if she disapproves of me, I am of no worth. So the sort of rubric for the negative mother complex is that my worth is directly in proportion to my ability to please. Now, that's the story of becoming an Episcopal priest. There are a plethora of people pleasers in the priesthood. <laughs> My published poems have less alliteration. So it is with the, the, the child that a kind of operative definition of the contents of the ego, ego consciousness, is all of those things about myself that I'm able to tolerate consciously. That's what's in my ego consciousness, those things that are tolerable. And the authorities have determined that. And so for the first seven years of development in a child, the authorities are parents, are parental figures. They're the authorities. And so my ego develops around a relationship with these authorities. Now, the authorities are greater than simply biological mother and father or surrogate mother and father or grandparents or even neighbors. We have greater what 
Freud would have called super-ego figures like the church or the government or school. So in those first seven years of development, parents, church, government, school, all are giving messages of approval and disapproval. This is the way to behave. This is normative behavior in this civilization, in this culture. If you act this way, you will adapt to the collective. If you don't, you will be rejected. Now that is a rough definition of the negative father complex. How y'all doing? <laughs> the negative father complex is simply the father archetype draws the lines, civil engineering, civilization, draws the lines, those are called rules, a ruler or codes. So the father sets the rules, and if you don't follow the rules, you get shamed and kicked out. You can't be here if you don't follow the rules. Now, mother withholds affection and gratification on the basis of behavior. Father kicks your butt out. America, love it or leave it. That's negative father. And so our development in those first seven years is to adapt to getting her approval and him letting you stay. And so we are highly adapted creatures to what it takes to get that gratification and approval. Now the culture or the parents or the superego figures will tell us what's unacceptable. So if we have certain thoughts that are unacceptable, we can do several things with them. We can suppress them. We can repress them. Don't you love those mechanistic terms that come out of Western industrial? All of these terms really came out of the scientific world. So they're mechanistic, you know. We suppress, we repress. These are called ego defenses. And they come into being to help the ego survive. They are necessary. They are requirements. So we all have ego defenses. So we suppress or we repress. One means it was at one time conscious, but it couldn't stay in consciousness because it was intolerable, so it was repressed. Suppress means just keep it away, keep it down, don't let it come to consciousness. Who among us uh, doesn't know something about suppression or repression? Other ego defenses are projection. In other words, we say, that's not about me, that's about them. So we ask people to carry our darkness for us. So we project it onto them. And all of those things that come into consciousness in our childhood that are disapproved of by our authorities don't go away. They don't disappear. Jung said that the system, the psyche, is a closed system. He actually said a relatively closed system. I think he meant by that energy is displaced between and among people. But essentially, the psyche is a closed system so that if something is repressed, it doesn't go away. It goes somewhere else. And that's basically the beginning of an understanding of a complex. But most particularly, the things that are intolerable about me or my 
self, as I understand it, my ego consciousness, are repressed into a complex that Jung called the shadow. And the shadow is that dark part of the psyche. Now, in a facile way, um, we are heirs to what's known as Augustinian religion. this interesting idea that Dr. Calvin was working on, trying to decide why do some people respond to Christianity and others don't? And so he came up with this elect or predestination idea that some evidently were predestined to do so. And so they said, well, Dr. Calvin, how do we know who's elected and who isn't? So he went to the scripture and he said, by their fruits ye shall know them. And that's the beginning of the Western Industrial Revolution. That we were out to prove by our produce, our production, our fruits, that we were the elect. Now that's, that's been an enemy to Christianity or to any healthy religion, I think. Now Augustinianism is this idea of original sin. Most people think that original sin is biblical. That is, it says in the Bible, human beings are original sinners. But it's really Augustine's own pathology that led to that doctrine. Now, my conservative Christian friends and, and my, my conservative colleagues who are theologians call this revisionist theology. And they're right. They're correct. But I like to quote scripture back without a vision that people perish. And that old vision has made us blind, so we need to revision this. And so the revision is maybe that we're not nearly as bad as St. Augustine thought we were. That, that maybe, as Matthew Fox would say, that there's original blessing rather than original sin. And as Jungians would say, maybe the fall was a fall upward into consciousness. And that really what we find as labor and, and pain is process rather than punishment. And so it's a different kind of worldview and a way to kind of rethink uh, much of what we've inherited in Western American religion. And I say that because there is an American religion. 
which has little to do with Judaism or Christianity or Islam or Buddhism. And in um, American religion, we have this toxic cocktail of Pelagianism, Puritanism, Calvinism, and Augustinianism. And the reason I say that is because I'm coming to a very important point, and that is that, that most people, sort of what I call pedestrians, believe that original sin was genital sex. I know that's hard for you to believe, but trust me. The association, and of course this was a, if one does a psychoanalytic study of St. Augustine, we see with his mother complex and his own problems with his instinctuality that he created for us a certain view about human instinctuality that says basically it's bad. That our job as human beings is to overcome our instincts. That nature, our human nature, is negative and bad. Well, all of nature is. Now, for another lecture and another time, this was one of the great errors of the patriarchy or of the masculine archetype. For all that it's done in terms of progress and evolution, it is so afraid of nature. The enemy of the masculine, of course, is the mother. And so mother nature is something that is terribly to be feared and overcome. And so the most natural thing we experience is our body, and it's the most feminine thing because it's matter, material, coming from the root of mother. And so the masculine has put down nature and our natural instincts as being the enemy of God. I know that's hard for you to believe. Trust me, I'm a priest. I know these things. I grew up with the idea that the human body was something to be feared. And it was ugly, and it was not good, and, and it was to be ashamed of. Now, the point I'm making with this is that when we repress something, it does not go away. It will either come out as an obsession or a perversion. And what have we inherited in the collective about human sexuality? I've never seen so much obsession around human sexuality. That's all we want to talk about. You remember that all of the media came home from Cuba when the Pope was there because of that little girl in the White House. I mean, it really says something about the collective. I mean, there's an industry around uh, our obsession with human sexuality. And the church, God save it, is all it wants to talk about. It's an obsession. Now, for this idea of denying human sexuality as an evil that were to rise above, I always love that line in The African Queen where Humphrey Bogart says, well, it's only natural, ma'am. And, uh, and, and Catherine Hepburn sort of being the matriarchal patriarch says, nature, my good man, is what we're put on earth to rise above. 
And so this idea that we could rise above these natural instincts and that they are bad, they don't go away. They come out as obsession or perversion. And think about the perversion that goes on in the church around human sexuality. There's a joke that's probably inappropriate to tell, but I'm infamous in my ability to do that. That there's a 1-800 number if you've been sexually abused by a priest, and there's a 1-900 number if you want to be. Now, what I'm building here is a case for the shadow and the contents of the shadow have so much to do with instincts and nature that have been unacceptable in our culture. So the contents of the shadow are not necessarily evil things or bad things. They are simply things that have not been tolerable in the collective or in the authorities around which this ego was developing. And so, the contents of the shadow actually may be things that are of great value to us in our vocation of becoming human. The earliest part of a psychoanalytic relationship is beginning to do the work around the shadow. Now, it's not just instinctuality or body uh, or nature kinds of things that are in the shadow. It's also things that were just not acceptable to our parents. For instance, if we take a highly extroverted mother who has born to her a deeply introverted son. Now, we do know in this culture that extroverts are rewarded, and the East introverts are rewarded. In this culture, extroverts are rewarded entertainers, CEOs. So the mother who is extroverted values extroverts. And as a matter of fact, she sees that as the goal is to become extroverted, and she has this child who is deeply introverted. And so she says to him and in his presence, something's wrong with John. He doesn't want to join anything. He doesn't seem to have any friends. He just sits in his room and reads. Now, it's even more destructive for that little boy if he has a sibling who's extroverted or a good friend, a kind of compensatory alliance that child, children get where the extroverted child and the introverted friend has a kind of compensatory relationship. What messages is this little boy getting about his most natural quality which is the way his psychic energy flows. He gets the message, something's wrong with me. And so his introversion is in his shadow. So the contents are not bad, nor are they evil. Uh, sometimes they're not even negative. They were just, they were perceived by the authority as being unacceptable, and therefore they were repressed they haven't gone away, and they're in the shadow. 
the shadow wants more than anything else to be integrated. And it will, here's another wonderful King James word, it will importune consciousness. It will act itself out in a plethora of ways. Not because it's bad, but because it wants to be loved. Now, you all by now are familiar with the writings of James Hillman. He's a fairly controversial analyst who sees himself as second generation. But I like a lot of what Jim writes, and I like a lot of his work. And this very short little piece that he wrote several years ago in an anthology uh, called Meeting the Shadow, he wrote The Cure of the Shadow. The cure of the shadow is on the one hand a moral problem, that is, recognition of what we've repressed, how we perform our repressions, how we rationalize and deceive ourselves, what sort of goals we have and what we've hurt, even maimed, in the name of these goals. On the other hand, the cure of the shadow is a problem of love. How far can our love extend to the broken and ruined parts of ourselves, the disgusting and perverse? How much charity and compassion have we for our own weakness and sickness? How far can we build an inner society on the principle of love, allowing a place for every part of me? He goes on. The description Freud gave of the dark world which he found did not do justice to the psyche. The description Freud gave of the unconscious, or his word, the subconscious, was far too rational. He did not grasp enough the paradoxical symbolic language in which the psyche speaks. He did not see fully that each image and each experience has a prospective aspect as well as a reductive aspect, a positive as well as a negative side. Freud did not see clearly enough the paradox that rotten garbage is also fertilizer. There's power in darkness. I'm going to stop and we're going to take a little break and then we're going to come back and have question and answer. And uh, let me conclude by one of my favorite writers one familiar to almost everybody, and that is that wild-eyed English engraver named William Blake. Blake was outlandish and astonishing in his prophetic nature at the time of which he wrote. One of the early romantics who sort of pulled down the facade of the persona of the church of his time. Blake writes this. I think this is terribly profound and a good conclusion to my opening remarks. All Bibles or sacred codes have been the cause of the following errors. Number one, that man has two real existing principles, a body and a soul. That's an error. Number two, that energy called evil is alone from the body. 
that reason called good is alone from the soul. Error number three. That God will torment, will torment man in eternity for following his energies. But the following contraries to these are true. Number one, man has no body distinct from his soul. For that called body is a portion of soul discerned by the five senses, the chief inlets of the soul. I'm going to read that again. It's so beautiful. Man has no body distinct from soul, for that called body is a portion of soul discerned by the five senses, the chief inlets of soul. The second truth, energy is the only life and is from the body, and reason is the bound or outward circumference of energy. Number three, energy is eternal delight. We'll take a break. Ten minutes. That, but let me just give a summary line to kind of prime our pumps to get us back. The thesis here is that that really the self, as Jung defined it, is that which generates life from within. So that the self is that which generates our life from inside us. It also integrates all of those estranged and alienated parts of us, and most particularly the ego, and that we'll spend tomorrow uh, looking at the Judeo-Christian myth as, as uh, a, a, perhaps a map about individuation and seeing that this fundamental sense of alienation and estrangement from God is really the alienation and estrangement of the ego from self. That that's the common human experience, a sense of separation and alienation from something that we knew at one time that we miss and long to return to. So the idea of reunion is about reconnecting with self. It's what, what known as, in Edinger's popularized, the idea of the ego-self axis. And so the, I'm also saying tonight that the self so wants wellness that it will create illness in order to get it. That the self so wants wellness that it will enter into a pact with the devil in order to get us transformed. I refer to the book of Genesis and the book of Job that this idea that, that there is a dark side to God or a dark side to the self that creates havoc for the ego in order to get it moving or transformed. So that the self wants wellness so much that it will create crisis and illness and accident in order to get us moving toward our goal of wholeness. That's part of the thesis here. The last thing I'll say is that I had a very wise supervisor who said, well, Pittman, you need to remember this that if you will sit with people and be quiet, they tend to get better. That's that sense that the psyche will seek its own wellness if you find a container for that. Okay, so what's been stimulated? What are your questions? What are your responses? I, I, I can't promise I'll answer your questions, but I will respond to them. Yes, please. 
Well, the, uh, in, yeah, okay. The question is, uh, could I define the ego self axis, A-X-I-S, axis? Uh, I've lectured several times and there's something about my Oklahoma accent that people don't, and they think axis is A-C-E-S-S, -S, so we're talking about A-X-I-S. Um, I was lecturing about the Cynex uh, a year or so ago and somebody thought it was C-Y-N, Cynic. So I want to be careful. We, you thought it was too, didn't you? Yeah. S-E-N-E-X, Cynex. But the axis is the reestablishment of a relationship between ego and self. That by nature, that the ego evolves out of the unconscious, much like the fetus comes out of the womb. And so that there is this sense of aloneness and estrangement, alienation for the ego, struggling to find its meaning and its orientation because it's been cut off from self. And this is evidently part of the natural process, not unlike an infant from mother or us from God. And so that the reestablishment of ego self axis is that the relationship changes between the ego seeing itself as superordinate in the psyche and it changes to subordinate picture or view of itself so that the, the ego begins to see itself as subordinate to self and the self is superordinate so that that which directs and rules my life as it were is within me and it is the self not just my ego needs or my ego demands that the self is something I can trust to know what is best for me in terms of so uh, another way to say ego self axis is that it's, it is the religious function of the psyche because the religious function of the psyche is this idea that the psyche seeks to reconnect so that the word religio means to reconnect. Ligare means to tie up or tie back. Ligament, ligare, religion, all the same root, which means to connect. So that a religious function is this longing to be reconnected to the source of our creation. And that's what the ego longs to be reconnected to the source of its creation, which is the self. So an ego self axis is when the ego begins to see it's a part of self, not apart from it. The last kind of response I would make to that is this idea that the ego really sacrifices or gives itself up in terms of its place in the psyche and um, is really dismembered in that sense or crucified as we would say in the Christian myth in order to be reunited with self. So ego self-axis is about an attitude toward the unconscious and it's one of seeking to be related and connected. Somebody else, please. The question is uh, that early in the lecture I talked about children not being conscious, and yet observing children we see that they are conscious. Well, I'm, I think we're, we're talking about being conscious of being conscious, yeah. I think we're talking about the, the more sophisticated level of consciousness rather than simply awareness, that we're talking about those sort of philosophical arguments that went on about kinds of consciousness, the epistemological arguments about knowing and 
that kind of sophisticated thing about consciousness. The children are, um, you know, at the lower level of consciousness, as it were. One of the problems I have always had in lecturing about the psyche is that we only have spatio-temporal words to use, and so lower to me is higher. In other words, a lower consciousness is probably a higher consciousness. <laughs> Jesus seemed to think so. You know, this sophisticated, complex, highly developed consciousness may be the enemy of, you know, peace and hope and those things we look so for. Uh, so, I don't know what's higher and lower, but, you know, unless we become like children, we won't enter into the kingdom. I'm sorry? Yeah, childlike and childish are entirely two different, different things. Childish is a description of egocentricity. Yeah, you brought your own microphone. Good. The mic now, yeah. Yeah. Are you going to sing or just? Uh... I'm going to wander around. Uh, whoever wants to talk. Oh, good. Thank you. Somebody else. Don't be intimidated by the microphone. Oh, God. <laughs> um, I was wondering what you thought of. What What are your thoughts on that? A lot of our role models that we have in Western society seems seem to be in the past so sanitized so righteous compared to now a lot of the role models are their darkness is sort of brought out you know in, in, in full view and what difference does that make to our own development to see these people because we do look upon I think um, you know whatever we see in public we, we look upon as, as models for yeah. us to either model ourselves after or not. Well this is a hard and difficult question it's sort of the, I assume we can hear the question now It depends on sort of what one's goal is here. Is it adaptation or is it individuation? One of the, the two strong ego defenses are idealization and denial. And so we've come through a period with public figures of idealization. When in fact, you know, we knew about Kennedy and Mickey Mantle, but you know, nobody wrote about it because we wanted this idealized uh, figure. And that seems to create a better environment for adaptation. And that is you be like this one-sided character who is strong and brave and wise. And, okay. Now, individuation requires that we expose that human beings have dark sides and are not perfect and so we can't idealize if we're going to individuate. We even take um, the, this idea of individuation and want to idealize it and romanticize it. I mean, it's, it's not terribly romantic it's, and, and it's difficult and it's full of garbage and darkness and difficulty. So it depends on what the goal is. And, and so if we want people to adapt to an idealized model of being human, then we need to idealize our public figures and leaders and not expose their feet of clay or their dark sides or their backsides. But if we want authentic individuation, we need to accept that all of our leaders are, are human beings. And that's my response. And it feels like the collective is moving out of the idealization uh, and to the accepting of, uh, and a lot of this is American. You know, Europeans are a little, you know, 
meet our aunt's mistress and children come to the funeral. You know, I mean, we're a little more honesty about the reality of being human, but be that as it may, that's my response. Somebody else. Yes, please. Yeah. And uh, is wholeness simply a situation that is impossible to reach while alive? Is yeah. it back to the union with whatever? Yeah. And is yeah. The, the question is oft asked, and, and, uh, and a good question. The question is, is wholeness uh, a possibility for human beings? And... Um, and my response, and, and this is a studied response, but it's just a guess, is that death is a requirement for wholeness. Now that, that has a lot of implications to it. Um, that dying is, is a requirement for wholeness. It, it says a lot to me about uh, suicide, as a matter of fact. That suicide really the reason we've been sort of intuitively and morally outraged by suicide is because we realize that there, that there must be something about that dying process that's really important to the next realm. And so suicide seems to not work in that sense. Um, so yes, I, don't, I mean, I don't think um, one of my dear friends, uh, Ernie Bell, says that wholeness is like going halfway to the wall every day. You get closer, but you never get there. Now, the second part of your question was, what's the difference between wholeness and individuation? Individuation is just the process. Integration, I mean. Integration is the process uh, of moving toward wholeness. Somebody else? Yes, Margaret. Could you, uh, could you say something about uh, in a yet broader sense, the tendency to idealize. Let me just uh, yeah. say a little more what I'm thinking about, because uh, we can idealize the morally upright, well-developed leader that has no lust and no desire and no weakness. We can also idealize wholeness yeah. and integration, right. and we are just putting up another ideal. Right. Now, we used to have to be perfect, now we have to be conscious. Right. And you can get... <laughs> You know, so what's the difference between striving after perfection and striving after consciousness? Because we're just setting up another ideal that is impossible to achieve. So there is something in human nature, it seems to me, that forever puts up some kind of an ideal, and then we say, well, no, that's lopsided, and we yeah. put it aside, and we put another one right next to it. Yeah. So I wonder whether you could address that a little. Well, one of the, the, the things that, one of the, very important concepts, I think, psychologically and theologically, we haven't talked about is paradox. And, and here's what we're into always is that, that things are going to have opposites. And that they're in this wonderful term that Jung loved from Heraclitus called innoziodromia, which is this idea that opposites are seeking once out. We're, we're always in this kind of imbalance and movement between. Um, you know, authenticity and idealization or something. So there, there's that dimension to it. But also that, that idealization is a defense. 
and it's a defense against the anxiety that comes from incomplete or, or imperfect. And Mark is right, we can idealize anything, and we do, and it's a defense against the anxiety that comes from the incomplete or imperfect. Uh, and, and so, uh, we do it so naturally. I mean, I, I've had people come into my office, and I begin to take a history, or what you'll call the anamnesis, and, and uh, well, tell me about, you know, your growing up. Well, I, I had an ideal childhood. By, by the time we're into the sixth month, we're, we're looking at about this idealized childhood. It's a defense, and it's a form of denial in a way. And so uh, another kind of synonym for what Marg is talking about is what I call sentimentalizing or romanticizing. And that is, I'm, I'm not greatly enamored by people who come to me and say they want to go on the journey. I mean, almost like I'm a travel agent. You know? Uh, you don't know what in the hell you're asking if you really want to, to, to try to individuate, you know, consciously or make it. I mean, it's, it's uh, uh, not to be sentimentalized or romanticized, you know. It's, uh, it'll, in the shamanistic sense, it'll take you to hell and back. So, yeah, we'll romanticize, idealize, and they're all ego defenses against dealing with the pain or the anxiety that comes when you try to become a little more conscious. Somebody else? Please, right, you're down front. No, please. You mentioned Judeo-Christian myth earlier. What is that? The Judeo-Christian myth? It's the Bible. Can I expand on that? <laughs> well, th this is a very complicated question, and I, I don't want to make a glib response. It's a good question. The, the problem is that, that that collection of books called the Bible, the word Bible really means library. So the Bible is a library of books. And in that library of books, there are certain sacred stories that uh, are under the category of literature called myth. And, and they, Jung felt as though um, that the myths were really the collective dreams, that myths were sort of to the collective the way dreams are to the individual. And it's, it's God or the self or truth coming through the collective in these sacred stories. And so, in, in my vocabulary, myth is a, is a sacred story, a healing story, a story of a revelation about human nature. And so that's what I mean by the myth is kind of a catch-all term for the sacred story. So, In certain circles, myth is a, it's a pretty scary word because it, in our culture, it's become the opposite, you know. Myth means untruth. It's just a myth. Well, in my vocabulary, myth means ultimate truth. So that's one of the problems we have. And I can give you another semester course on why. Why the word myth became untruth is because they're also non-rational and reason is the big god of the Western. So myths became, they, they were not factual. One of, the things that's, uh, one of the things that Jung was very helpful for in terms of biblical study is that Jung said if we could ever learn the difference between psychic truth and physical fact, 
we would begin to understand the Bible. The difference between psychic truth and physical fact. And so that guy that's out there looking for the ark up on Mount Ararat is looking for physical fact. You know, but there's psychic truth in the ark. So that's that kind of thing. Yes, sir. You mentioned Joseph Campbell earlier. Yeah. His definition of a myth was that as a metaphor, something that could not be explained in any other, any other way, any language, yeah. except the myth. And I think this applies mainly to, he was using it in, in the case of the, uh, of the uh, creation story. Yeah. And uh, of course, we have we've come a long way since then. That was a wonderful myth that we could live by and, and uh, set standards by and everything like this. Yeah. But there's been so many changes now that it's hard to to follow that myth anymore. We need a new story. One of his definitions of uh, the function of myth was that it bridges the gap between imagination and science. So that at the time that those stories were created, they were an attempt uh, to bridge the gap between what they knew and what they didn't know. And, and they were, but in addition to that, I think that they, if they well up out of the unconscious or out of the collective unconscious, they have archetypal truth to them, and we're looking for one of those shapes of truth that are in these sacred stories. And so I'll be doing that all day tomorrow, as a matter of fact, is to sort of look at some of those mythological structures and see if they don't reveal something about the nature of God and the nature of human. Somebody else? Yes, please. just mentioned, you know, if you want to go on this journey and it's a, kind of a button for you, you're going to go to hell and back. Yeah. And what that brought to mind for me was St. John of the Cross, his dark night of the soul. Yeah. And then I got thinking, well, this really ought to connect to everything you've said for the last hour and a half. So I was wondering if you could take that a little further. Uh, the, the concept of to hell and back or dark night of the soul? Well, I mean, essentially, uh, there seems to be no way to get to where we're going without going through hell. I mean, it's a part of the myth. Now, hell in this sense is not just that American religion understanding of hell, which is the place of punishment. It's the negative father view of hell. That is, if you don't follow the rules, you get kicked out, and that's where you have to go. And that's not what I'm talking about with hell. I'm talking much more of the Greek sense of Hades, that there is this dark place of gestation. You know, this place of, of learning that you can't learn any other way. It, was, it will be referred to us upon our return as, as hell because it, it took us within an inch of our lives or it, it took away our previous structures or it, it uh, you know, changed our relationships or you know, whatever else. Uh, it probably has pain, it has uh, anxiety, it has all those sort of affective characteristics to it. But it was, it was, it's the period of gestation and, and growth that comes that Hades, the underworld, uh, requires. And so, you know, it's, a, it's an attempt to sort of change a worldview to see that this is part of process rather than punishment. And that it may be a requirement for whatever it is that we're to do, and the moral courage to go ahead and do it, uh, you know, is, is difficult to to get and find. And that's why we need companions and guides. We need people who we can who go with us and people who guide us. I don't think one can do 
one cannot do the work alone. And this is one of those other paradoxes that I love to say. I alone must become myself. I cannot become myself alone. And, and we live, we have to have companions and guides along the way. And any of us who is a guide has been guided. So that's a, that's a response. And it's, you know, spiritually we've known for, for a long time that, that this uh, valley of the shadow of death, this dark night of the soul, this belly of the whale, you know, all of those things are about this human experience. Jung said that the myth of the first half of life is the dragon slayer. The myth of the second half of life is the night sea journey, the Nakia. And so the night sea journey, the belly of the whale, all those are part of this requirement, and there is power in the darkness. Yeah, got a little evangelical there, didn't I? Yes. Please. Somebody. At the very back, yeah. Um, you made a point of distinguishing between pathological pain and the pain of emotion or suffering. Yeah. Is the extension of what you're trying to say go to the side that says ultimately suffering is what we're doing to ourselves, that it's a, a pinching of ourselves. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I was saying that, that, and once again, we talk in, in sort of images or symbols that, that to literalize or concretize, very dangerous. Uh, Jung, uh, there was a wonderful, interesting little book by Miguel Serrano called Hesse and Jung. He was friends of both of them, and S evidently was analyzed by Jung, and so, but in, in that interview, he goes to see Jung at a very old age, and Jung said, Jung, you know, you, we could idealize Jung if we wanted to, but he, this was a tortured man. And, and Jung, even at, at his end, he never felt that he was understood, he felt rejected by the continental theologians, he didn't think anybody ever really understood what he was about, he, he, you know, he was not, you know, this, night of, of uh, analytical psychology. He was a tortured man. Genius, but nonetheless tortured. He said, I'm afraid only the poets will ever understand me. And so I want to speak poetically for him, that the self creates suffering for the psyche. In order to build soul, in order to transform that it is the crucible out of which, you know, the, the, the soul is formed. And uh, so, yes, we create our own suffering, but it has meaning. I mean, it has purpose. Um, and any of these illnesses or accidents or divorces or failures, if we can understand the meaning, then that's how we integrate them. A neurosis is a suffering that has not yet found its meaning. Uh, Robert Johnson, in one of his books, I think it's uh, maybe it's Owning Your Own Shadow or maybe in, in the Psychology of Ecstasy or the Psychology of Joy, but he tells an anecdote, probably apocryphal about Jung, that one of Jung's analysands came in and said, Dr. Jung, I'm so thrilled, I've just been made 
president of my company. And Young says, I'm so sorry. But I think if we work hard, we can get you through it. Another now, Sam comes in and says, I've been fired. Young opens a bottle of wine and says, we must celebrate. Something important will now happen. So it's the, it's, you know, but I think we've got to be careful because we're speaking once again rather romantically here because there is, you know, self-sabotage and masochism and lots of other things that go on that we do to ourselves that are not about individuation. They're about being stuck in neurotic, pathological behavior patterns. So, you know, not everybody who gets fired is on his way to glory. You know, he may be stuck in a very pathological pattern. So I don't want to get the idea that that everything bad that happens is good because not everything bad that happens is good because it may just be the continuation of an old pattern of behavior. I think it's a recovery move that says a neurosis is uh, continuing to behave in the same pattern expecting different results. And so, you know, I don't want to make these gross generalizations and saying, well, if something bad happens to you, you know, now something good will happen, because it might not. Yes. Along the same line of thinking about suffering, I, I wonder if you would say something about um, 